Uh, first, I'm going to introduce our guest preacher for today, and then I'll invite our readers to come up and read uh, selections from this week's uh, Lenten lectionary reading. Uh, Dr. Christina Cleveland uh, comes to the Triangle area not very long ago from the Twin Cities area, but before that she grew up in San Francisco Bay Area. She received her PhD in social psychology from UC Santa Barbara and is a, an Oakland A's fan and hopefully by now a Durham Bulls fan. Uh, most of Dr. Cleveland's work uh, is centered around race and reconciliation and conflict, and she teaches classes. Um, she has written a book that we have available uh, when you came in in the foyer called uh, Disunity in Christ, and that, that was uh, one of my first exposures to Dr. Cleveland, and it really highlighted uh, a lot of things I couldn't uh, name or put words to, and it's been really challenging. She's working on a book um, called The Priesthood of the Privileged. I'm not sure when that comes out. but uh, And currently she lives on a farm in Chapel Hill. And when I, when I met Dr. Cleveland when she first moved here, she was learning about deer and spiders and all sorts of farm living things that don't happen in the Twin Cities. Uh, I'm going to invite our readers to come up and, and read from Genesis and Romans and our psalm for today. Genesis 2, 15 to 17, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Then Yahweh took the earth and settled it in the Garden of Eden. Sorry, then Yahweh took the earth creature and settled it in the Garden of Eden, so that it might cultivate and care for the land. Yahweh commanded the earth creature, You may eat as much as you like from any of the trees of the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You must not eat from that tree. For on the day that you eat from that tree, that is the day that you will die. Yes, die. But the snake was even more naked, the most cunning of all the animals that Yahweh had made. The snake asked the woman, did God really tell you not to eat from the trees in the garden? The woman answered the snake, we may eat fruit from all the trees in the garden, but of the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, don't eat it and don't touch it or you will die. The snake said to the woman, die, you won't die. God knows well that on the day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's, knowing good and evil. The woman knew that the tree was enticing to the eye and now saw that the fruit was good to eat, that it was desirable for the knowledge it could give. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She gave some also to the man beside her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. Romans 5, 12 through 14. Therefore, sin entered the world through the first humans, and through sin, death. And in this way, death has spread through the whole human race, because all have sinned. Sin existed in the world long before the law was given, even though it's not called sin when there is no law. Even so, death reigned over all who lived from the first parents until Moses, even though their sin, unlike that of our first parents, was not a matter of breaking a law. It's the word of the Lord.
This is Psalm 32, 1 through 7. Happiness comes from having your rebellion taken away, from having your failure completely covered. Happiness comes from Yahweh not counting your mistakes, from having nothing to hide. As long as I have kept my stubborn silence, my, my bones grew weak because of my constant complaints. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped by a summer's heat. Finally, I admitted my sin to you and stopped hiding my guilt. I said, I confess my rebellion, Yahweh, and you took away the guilt of my sin. That's why people of faith everywhere should pray to you. They'll find you. Even when the flood begins rising, it will never touch them. You are my hiding place. You'll protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of freedom. It's the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Wow, what a joy to be here. Um, I don't often um, do pulpit preaching these days, mainly because I don't like the parameters of a 30-minute sermon. I, like, why preach a sermon when you can do an eight-hour workshop is my, my philosophy. Um, but it just so happens that last week and this week, I've had the wonderful honor of preaching, and I'm really excited to be here with you. And I'm, I, the work I do is so ecumenical, and I love that about it, but it also puts me in really different places and scenarios. And last week, I happened to be preaching at a, um, an old, massive Baptist church in Charlotte, Myers Park Baptist Church. And uh, I got up to preach, and I was in a robe because they, they robe there, and um, um, there's a spiral staircase leading up to the pulpit. And so you're like up, so like imagine me talking to you from the chandeliers, like that's how it was last week. And so that was really fun because I felt really powerful. Um, but it's nice to be here where I'm just sort of among the people because that's, that's another way that I like to interact. And it was, I was just thinking about the contrast and how it's so encouraging in my work to be able to interact with so many different spaces of the people of God. And everywhere I go, God is present and God is working and God is convicting and God is comforting. And that gives me so much hope regardless of theology, regardless of the racial makeup, regardless of the class makeup. It's so powerful for me to know that God is constantly incarnating in those spaces and challenging us. So thank you for having me here. Thank you for Chris for inviting me. And I want to pray for us first because what I have to say um, is somewhat intense, but I also think there's freedom in intensity. God, you are good. You are a comforter. You are a creator. You are a liberator. You bring all the tools to the table. Um, we thank you that you are a God who came to a world that's very much like the world that we're in now, one that's full of brokenness, one that's full of genocide, one that's full of corrupt governments. Um, and this was exactly the world that you came to as a little, little, little baby, powerful and small. Thank you that this is in your wheelhouse and there's really nothing that we can't bring to you. There's nothing that we can't uncover before you. There's nothing that we can't face because of you. Be with us today, comfort and convict, and give us joy and hopefully some laughter too. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, like Chris said, I came from Minnesota most recently, and uh, <laughs> Three years ago now, I was invited uh, as a last-minute faculty member to lead a trip of students, a, a, a J term, so a January term, um, kind of like an academic program to Northeast Brazil, Bahia, Salvador Bahia. I don't know if you're familiar with that part of Brazil. It's not the one that's usually most talked about. 
But um, another faculty member had planned this entire trip and then the last minute um, was unable to lead the trip. And so they, they said, is there anyone who like in two weeks is willing to take 23 college students to Northeast Brazil for five weeks? And I was like, yeah, obviously me. So I led the trip and it was wonderful. But what was interesting is um, the students were supposed to do all this reading to prepare them for the trip. And um, I'm not sure if they did it or not, but I had 22 white students. They were all from the Midwest. Um, they didn't know they were white. And we went down to Bahia, which is, if you're not familiar with Northeast Brazil, but Salvador um, in Bahia is the blackest city outside of Africa. It's 92% black. So um, it was the Salvador was is a major city. It's like seven seven or nine million people, and it was the main city on the um, the Atlantic slave trade, and so more slaves were actually in terms of numbers brought to Brazil than the United States. So this is an incredibly black city. And here I am, uh, this black professor uh, leading around a group of uh, 22 lily, lily, lily white. I mean, these are Minnesotans in the middle of winter, okay? <laughs> this is like blinding white at this point. Um, and they, they were sort of following me around. And we got there the first day. And for some reason or other, my students did not seem to understand that they were going to the black part of Brazil. So it was really shocking for them, and it was really hard for them. Actually, it was so hard that after one day, one of my students quit the program and went home because she didn't feel safe, which is a code word for all sorts of things. But um, her parents lost $13,000, and they had to buy her a last-minute ticket home, which cost $2,000, but they were willing to do that for their daughter. But the rest of the students were just so uncomfortable because for the first time in their lives, they were realizing I have a racial identity, and it's called white, and I don't know what to do with that. Um, and meanwhile, I was just loving it, because um, all the hair care products were for me. Everybody looked like me. It was wonderful. So we'd go into the grocery store, you know, and they'd be like, we can't find hair care products. I'm like, oh, that's too bad. I don't know. I have a whole aisle to choose from here. Um, but there was, a, there was a, a discomfort, and many of them wanted to slink away from that discomfort. But I kept pushing it on them and saying, nope, let's talk about race. Let's talk about what it means to be white in this space. Let's talk about what this would translate back to in the United States. But it was uncomfortable. They didn't like being awakened to this reality. The next year when I was teaching at Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota, I was talking to my students about the realities of structural racism. And I shared with them about this, um, the, the classic study that's been replicated so many times now that shows that simply having a white sounding name makes you twice as likely to get called in for an interview than if you have a black sounding name. And what they did is they sent out resumes to over 500 different companies. The resumes were all exactly the same exactly the same in terms of content and qualifications. These are the types of people that, it's a no-brainer, call them in for an interview. The only thing they changed was the name. They had two black-sounding resumes, Jamal and Lakeisha, and two white-sounding resumes, Emily and Greg. And they found that Emily and Greg were twice as likely to get called in for an interview than Jamal and Lakeisha. And I was talking to my students about this, again, awakening them to the realities of structural racism, what it means to be white in our country, the baggage that goes along with that. And one of my students said, in a moment of discomfort, right, not wanting to actually face this reality, to grapple with it, to lament it, 
to do something about it, she said, but Dr. Cleveland, isn't that black people's own fault for naming their kids such weird names? I mean, what do black people expect? In her defensiveness, in her shame, rather than letting it sink in, rather than saying, tell me more, she said, don't tell me more. I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna come up with a defense, that, a defense for this, and this, this defense is actually gonna be offensive, right? And I said to her, well, Mackenzie, you just gave a great example of white privilege. Because why do white people get to decide what's normal, what's a normal name, what's average? She was ashamed, and she responded in her shame. A few months later, I was getting ready to speak at a, at a large Christian conference in the evangelical world. And uh, after I'd already agreed to speak at this conference, I found that my co-keynoter, um, or the other person who was going to keynote this conference with me, uh, is, is a white man who um, uh, has a history of um, being oppressive in his, in his language, particularly around people of color. And so I told the conference organizers, um, you know, I didn't agree to speak alongside this person, but since you've invited him, um, I'm going to have a conversation with him beforehand, just so that he knows that a big part of my talk will be a critique of his work, um, and I don't want to ambush him. So he and I got together and had a conversation beforehand, and this is someone who um, does a lot of work in Africa, and someone who many of you would probably know his name, um, quite well known, a New York Times bestseller, and he... Um, he, he has a way of talking about people of color that's really dishonoring. He, he, they're often the punchlines of his jokes. Um, and he's often speaking to predominantly white crowds who, um, who think it's funny. And so I said, you know, um, I just, I want to talk to you about what it means to be a white man doing this kind of work and the responsibilities that you have around social awareness and the responsibilities you have in seeing the image of God, affirming the image of God in diverse people. And he said... And I said, you know, I have to do this myself. I have to think about class. I have to think about my formal education. I have to think about what my social location means for the type of work that I do. So this, I'm not asking you to do anything that I don't do in my own work. I'm not asking you to do anything that I don't ask my students to do. And I said, for example, you're white and you're wealthy and you're male. And he said, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are you accusing me? And I was like, I. I'm not accusing you, I'm describing you. I'm, I'm not accusing you. He's like, how dare you call me a white man? You're accusing me. And I said, wait a second, but you are a white man. Um, <laughs> and it was interesting to see how much shame he was feeling in simply being called a white man. And he felt so much shame that he lashed out at me and he said, you know, there are only four people in the world I'm not friends with and you are one of them. <laughs> and I was kind of like, gosh, I wonder who those other people are. They're probably awesome, right? You know, um, <laughs> again, he felt shame in being made aware of this issue that we have around race and what that means for him. Earlier this semester, the faculty at Duke Divinity School were um, where I teach, met to talk about the results that we received from an, a, a long listening process in the fall, where for the first time, from, I've only been around Duke Divinity School for two years, but I'm told by people who've been around for a long time that this was the first time in the history of the school that all, all constituents, all constituent groups in the school were able to, to meet 
and to talk and to share their experience. Not Usually it's faculty who are in on these processes, but for the first time, students, staff, alums, were invited into this process of sharing their experiences, sharing the challenges and the joys that they have at Duke Divinity School. And one of the main findings of this you know, multi-week listening process was that we have a problem with race. We have a problem with racial injustice on our in, in our school. Many, particularly students and staff of color, feel disenfranchised, marginalized, left out, unheard, dishonored. And I sat on, in on the faculty meeting where we were receiving this information, and the, many of my colleagues were saying things like, they're not described, this, this cannot be accurate, they're not describing the Duke Divinity School that I know. Or I heard people saying things like, but some of the students who participated in this process were only here for about six weeks before they, how could they possibly, how, how could a black student who's only been here for six weeks even really know what it's like to be here? And in their shame, in their discomfort, rather than receiving information, rather than saying, tell me more. They pushed it away, they silenced, they walked away, they rationalized why this wasn't important information that was necessary for their own humanity, necessary for their own holiness, necessary for their divinity. I tell these anecdotes to show this pattern of shame that I often see, particularly when white people are forced to think about race, grapple with race, deal with race. When the reality of race is uncovered and white people are forced to, to come to face to face with it, white people often feel shame first. And it reminds me a lot of the shame that we see in Genesis 2 and 3, that Adam and Eve experience something is uncovered about their existence, about their reality, about their nature, and the first thing they want to do is cover it up and run away rather than turn towards God, turn towards each other, and be healed. When we think about the shame that comes from sin, oftentimes when we look at that Genesis passage, when we look at that Romans passage, we often focus on individual sin, right? Like, I feel ashamed because I stole the cookie from the cookie jar, or I feel ashamed because I cheated on my taxes, or I feel ashamed because, um, you know, I was rude to my spouse this morning, and they didn't deserve that. We don't often think about shame in the context of corporate sin, in the context of structural sin, corporate sins like racism and classism. But it's so present in the work that I do. In fact, there's, there's even a sociological term for the shame that white people experience. It's called white fragility. And Robin D'Angelo, a sociologist, coined this term and she describes white fragility as this. It's a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable triggering a range of defensive moves. These moves include the outward display of emotions such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation, just like my student in Brazil experienced white fragility and literally flew out of there 
just like my student at Bethel experienced white fragility and responded with defensiveness and accusations, it's black people's fault that I'm feeling uncomfortable like this right now. Just like this speaker experienced white fragility when I brought up that he was a white man and he accused me of accusing him. Just like so many of my colleagues experienced white fragility when they received information about an institution that they love and care about that was inconsistent with their own perspective and they responded by silencing, by saying, you know, we're not gonna participate in this process anymore. This process, this process is flawed. Actually, one of my colleagues made a motion to reject the report and tried to get us all to vote in favor of that, of his motion to not receive the report. White fragility. It's so connected to shame and it's so interesting to me, you know, people often talk about the breakdown of the black community, you know, and how we need to analyze this and that, but I think white fragility shows that there's been a breakdown in the white community. And it makes sense if you think about it because the entire concept of race as we know it is counter to the image of a triune God. It goes directly against the Trinity. It goes directly against the perichoresis of the Trinity. We were created to be an interdependent relationship with each other. We, we are created to indwell each other. We are created to participate in such mutuality and interdependence that we can't even possibly make sense of who we are without each other. But that's not the way that whiteness was created in our country. In fact, whiteness was created in opposition to the other. We often don't talk about this, we don't think about this, but the way that we think about race in the United States is a, is a very modern concept. It's only a few hundred years old. And the first person who wrote about race and the way we think about it was Thomas Jefferson, who literally weeks, weeks after writing the statement, all men are created equal, spent time writing this very awkward, strange book about how much he loved Virginia. And in that book, he's talking about, you know, the rolling mountains, and he's talking about the, the, vast, the vast farms, and he's also talking about the people who are owned, that he's talking about the chattel, the chattel slavery. And in that, he has to reconcile his very progressive, liberating, supposedly, belief that all men are created equal with the reality that at the height of his slaveholding slave career, he held 172 slaves, which by any stretch of the imagination is a significantly large plantation, or I tend to call them labor camps. And so in this, in this book, he's writing about race. He's introducing us to this concept of race, and he, he, he has to justify why all men are not created equal, and the way he does that is by saying black people are less human than white people. They don't get to participate in this utopia I'm creating because they're not actually human, and this is the beginning of whiteness. Up until that point, nobody defined themselves as white. Nobody identified as white. People had national identities. People had religious identities. The entire concept of whiteness, as we know it, was created in opposition to blackness. In opposition to blackness. It was anti-black. I am white because I'm not black. 
I am human because I'm not black. I get equality. I get to pursue life, liberty, and happiness because I am not black. This is the opposite of perichoresis. This is the opposite of Trinitarian relationship where we are defined due to our positive relationships with the other. Whiteness is defined as a negative relationship with the other, as oppositional to blackness. We were never created to be this way, and so it's not surprising to me that this has created a fragility in whiteness and in white people, a brokenness, a pathology. I love the, the Lenten texts for today in Genesis and Romans because they, they make it clear to us and they invite us into this reality and they show us there is a problem and it's central to the human condition. This is not a surprise. This is not shocking. We are inherently drawn to this sin that existed in the world long before the law was given even though it was not called sin. And I also love this text in Psalms because it points us to a different way, right? I mean, oftentimes when we come face to face with this reality, the brokenness of our racial world, the pain that exists because of it, the shame that some of us experience when we're awakened to this, we have an opportunity to slink away, we have an opportunity to you know, fight back in defensiveness, in silence, to carry out, to embody, to act out white fragility. Or we can do what the psalmist is encouraging us to do. And I love this because in, in, in many of the, uh, many of the, much of the scholarship on this psalm show that this is actually one of the teaching psalms. This, is, this was a sermon that David wrote, you know, ostensibly David. Um, and this was something that w- it, was, it was inviting people into a process. And, and it goes, happiness comes from having your rebellion taking, taken away and having your failure completely covered. Happiness comes from Yahweh not counting your mistakes, from having nothing to hide. As long as I kept my stubborn silence, my bones grew weak because of my constant complaints. As long as I refused to face this reality, as long as I carried this shame without dealing with it, I experienced the fragility that comes from the brokenness of the human condition. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped by a summer's heat. Finally, I admitted my sin to you and I stopped hiding my guilt. I said, I confess my rebellion, Yahweh, and you took away the guilt of my sin. And he says, that's why people of faith everywhere should pray to you. They'll find you. Even when the flood begins rising, it will never touch them. You are my hiding place. You'll protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of freedom. So many of us want to think that true reconciliation, so many of us want to think that we can get to the cross and the resurrection without actually feeling the discomfort of guilt, without feeling the discomfort of shame. But we only need to take one look at the cross, which was quite bloody, and know that there's no resurrection, there's no Easter Sunday without going through, through the pain. I was um, lucky enough to be part of 
a really cool event that took place on Friday at, um, at Duke, the Provost Forum on Race, Policing, and Community. And I was on the steering com committee for that, which was really, was really, really neat. And, and part of my role was to be in charge of, um, <laughs> to be in charge of the panel discussion on uh, justice and, uh, yeah, justice and power, essentially. So I got a bunch of people from the Divinity School, alums and friends of the Divinity School, to be on this panel. It was quite lively. And one of the panelists said something that I thought was so profound. She said, and to the crowd that was mostly white, she said, if you really want to Lenten practice, deal with your whiteness. If you really want to understand what Lent is about, dive deep into this. Don't avoid it. Because the pathway to freedom and as the psalmist tells us, the pathway to holiness is in admitting my sin and stop and not hiding my guilt. And I think this is an important space for, for all of us because we, we have to start to distinguish between shame and guilt. And as a social psychologist, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about this. And shame, shame is destructive. Shame is... Shame is what leads to white fragility. Shame is, leads to avoidance, defensiveness, and ultimately paralysis. Shame says there's, I am wrong. Shame says I am inherently wrong. And I see the way that shame plays out all the time. I showed the example. I mean, I shared the examples earlier, but you know, right now, Chris mentioned I live on I, I live on a farm in Chapel Hill, and it's great. I rent it out, and it's it's called the Haven for Weary Women of Color, and it's been a, a great space, and um, so many women have come and stayed and found haven there, and it's been neat. And we yeah, we have dealt with spiders and frogs and deer, and most recently mice, but. Um, we're still here. Now I'm house hunting, and I'm working with a realtor who um, is like semi-woke. And so he's, he's on his own journey, um, mainly because of me and my colleague, Valerie Cooper, but, um, who bought a house with him last year. So he's like now on his basically his second, second course on race and um, real estate and the history of <laughs> uh, the South. But anyways, um, I'm working with him because I'm thinking a lot about gentrification and what that means and, um, and uh, the histories of the neighborhoods here in, in Durham, because I'm probably going to buy in Durham. And um, I've been doing a lot of research on my own because he'll often say, hey, check out this house, and then I'll do research on the neighborhood and realize, wow, this is horrible. What's going on here, this process of gentrification? But just last weekend, I was reading an article on the Cleveland Holloway neighborhood, which is being gentrified. Um, and... Um, they were interviewing some of the residents, you know, presumably white, although someone like me could come in and gentrify, because whiteness is not about skin color exclusively. Um, skin color is part of it, but whiteness is really about hierarchy. It's about some people having power over others. Um, and so someone like me can participate in whiteness in ways by, like gentrifying. And so... Um, I, I've been thinking, gosh, how, you know, what do I, how do I make sense of this? So I've been reading all these articles, and there are people moving into Cleveland Holloway, and they're like, yeah, gentrification, yeah, gentrification is happening. I know I'm part of it, um, and I see some of my neighbors who, you know, live below the poverty line, and I want to do something to help, but I don't, 
I don't really know them. Um, I don't really know what their experience is. I don't know what to do. And I'm like, why don't you talk to them? They're your neighbors. Why don't you take a step forward? Why don't you lean into this discomfort rather than just being like, oh, you know what's happening? I don't know. Uh, right? That's what shame does. It, 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 it leads to paralysis. It leads us to, to run away when there's no way forward except for actually taking those steps. On the other hand, guilt is constructive. I love guilt. Guilt is great. Guilt is great as a social psychologist. You know, I was talking to one of my students about white privilege, and she said, you know, Dr. Cleveland, are you saying that I'm inherently at fault because I'm white? And I said, no, of course not. You're not inherently at fault. That would be throwing shame at you. I don't believe in throwing shame, but you have inherited a fault. You're not responsible for history, but you're responsible to history. And so when we take that approach, we're working from a guilt mentality, which guilt, guilt is wonderful. Guilt, um, it leads to all these positive motivations and behavior. When we feel guilty, we're not saying I'm bad, it's just saying, I'm participating in something, or I've, I've either explicitly or implicitly done something that was harmful, that is harmful, and I'm gonna do something about it. Apologies are really, really, really good for reconciliation, and so guilt tends to motivate apologies. And so research shows that apologies are great, especially particularly when they're, when they're motivated by guilt because they, they lead to some sort of you know, complicit agreement that the action was wrong. I'm owning up to this. Um, it also suggests that we're, not gonna, we're gonna try not to do it again, which is great. Um, and it often counteracts the implication that we don't care about the relationship. To, to stand up and say, hey, I'm taking responsibility for this. I'm willing to engage in this. I care. I care about the relationship. But beyond just words, apologies are great for what they do, but beyond just words, guilt leads us to act differently. Like I said, shame leads us to avoidance, defensiveness, paralysis. Guilt leads us to actions. Research shows that when we feel guilty, we're much more likely to have actually learned a lesson. The emotion of guilt gets... Um, gets sort of integrated with our memory. And when, when we're tempted to act in that way again, we're reminded of that feeling of guilt. And we're like, ooh, I remember that feeling. Let me try not to experience that again. How can I act differently? We actually learn. We learn when we experience guilt. Guilt also leads us to try to perform positive, just revolutionary actions. We're more motivated to find out, what can I do? How can I address this? And it actually helps us to be more aware of the factors that led to the initial transgression. Once we wake up, we find that ignorance is really not bliss. And we see all the different factors that we were participating in, even without our knowledge. And we can start to see things differently. The psalmist makes it so clear there is, in fact, a problem. But I'm just going to carry that burden if I don't 
lay it before God, if I don't lay it before my community, if I don't adopt the practice, whether it's a Lenten practice or not, of facing these issues. I'm going to close with just one story that I think is encouraging and interesting and kind of what happens when white people start to face their whiteness. And um, this is a story that I really like because it didn't start out as this like very sociologically imaginative, aware, critical race theory uh, fueled um, (laughs) approach. Like these were actually just regular people who were broken before God and were willing to keep saying yes to challenges that were placed in front of them. These were not people who, you know, took a class on reconciliation or had written um, or had read a bunch of, you know, liberation theology or any of the things that you would expect that you need to do. These were people who were willing to keep facing their shame over and over and over again and dealing with it. A few years ago, I was contacted by some women who um, lead a group called Moms in Touch. And um, it's, like a, it's like a white evangelical organization. And um, there are all these moms, they're mostly upper middle class, who get together and gather by uh, local high school. And then they pray for their kids. It's just like a nice prayer ministry. Um, I had not heard much about it until uh, they called me up and said, we want your help. Because there was a particular group of moms in touch that um, were, um, were meeting at their local high school and this particular high school, like many schools um, in metropolitan areas, um, served two very different populations. It served a white, predominantly um, upper middle class population, and it also um, had a, a neighborhood that was mostly low income Hispanic that was fed into this school. And so the school was like almost 50% white Hispanic. And um, the moms who were in the Moms in Touch group were all white and came from kind of the white neighborhood. And they contacted me because they felt this burden of, wait a second, there are, you know, I'm sure tons of Latina moms who'd want to be part of our group because there are tons of Latinx kids who go to this school, um, but we can't connect, we, we have, we've had trouble connecting with them. And so they were kind of, they came to me asking for help. Um, and I said, well, what, what have you tried to do to connect with these moms? And they said, um, well, we put up some flyers in some of the Hispanic churches, um, and we sent out some emails, but they won't come. Like, we don't know why they won't come. They just won't come. And so I said, okay, well, when does your group meet to pray? And they said, 11 o'clock on Thursday mornings. And I said, okay, well, what is it about your life that makes you available at 11 o'clock on a Thursday morning? And at this point, they weren't really dealing with this vast issue of whiteness, right? I mean, um, so they were like, well, you know, we, um, we got together with our spouses and we decided that being available to our kids was a priority for us because we really love our kids. And so we decided that, you know, I would stay home. And I was talking to like, three or four of the women, you know, we, we, we decided to stay home. We know it's a sacrifice, but it's worth it because we love our kids. And I was like, wow, that is the wrong answer. Like, that's... Um, and they were like, well, we don't know what the answer is then. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. Um, I appreciate your honesty, but my challenge to you is to leave your white churches in the suburbs and go and join an Hispanic church, get to know people, become aware 
of what it is about your life that makes you available at 11 a.m. Essentially, I was saying become aware of your whiteness, the barriers that your whiteness creates, the, the, the anti-Trinitarianness of your whiteness, the heresy of your whiteness. Get to know these things. And don't come back for like three months at least. And when you come back, I want to know what you've learned. And I say these sorts of things to people all the time, right? I mean, this is like what I do is go around challenging people. Um, and usually people are like, uh-huh, I know exactly what you're asking me to do. No. You know, like they just are like, again, going back to that shame, right? I mean, do we really want to uncover the brokenness between us? And what might that say about me? We don't want to know that. We'd rather, we'd rather be broken, honestly. We'd rather be sick because we don't know what healing is like. We don't know the ecstasy of healing. We don't know the ecstasy of wholeness. We'd rather cover up. So, but these women were incredible. So four of them gathered their families or their leaders. So there were like 20 women in the group, but the four leaders were like, we're going to do this. And they gathered their families and they went and joined these other churches. I'm sure that was interesting on so many levels. And they called me back six months later. And the first thing, one of the ladies, she said, okay, we have so much to tell you. Like, so much has happened. But first, before I say anything, I want to tell you that for the first time, and I will never forget this phrase. She said, for the first time in my life, I feel like I have flesh on my bones. And I just got goosebumps because I was like, this is perichoresis. This is the Trinity. This is the way we were always designed to be. She was like, how could I, I don't, how was I living before? How could I ever go back to what I experienced before? She's like, my whole world is blown open. And then she said, okay, so we made all these friends with all these amazing Latina moms. And she was like, uh, one of them who's kind of sassy, she was like, they love, our, they love their kids too. I was like, mm-hmm, probably, <laughs> probably more than you do probably. Um, and they were like, but our sisters, many of them are working two, three, four jobs. And may, we're realizing that uh, many of them live in neighborhoods where they don't feel safe a lot of the time. Many of them do not have private transportation, so they rely on buses, which aren't always reliable. They said many of them don't have access to childcare. And they were telling, talking to me about this experience of grappling with these inequalities and what that said about their existence, about their whiteness. They had to make sense of this because they were starting to realize the only thing that separates our reality and our experience from these women, our hearts are the same. The only thing that separates our realities is the fact that we're white, we participate in whiteness, we live in these safe, comfortable homes that are separate from the difficulties that our sisters face. And they knew that in order to, a, to even begin to have real perichoresis, real Trinitarian relationship, those barriers had to start breaking down. And so they said, so we changed everything. They said our group now meets at 11 p.m. on a Thursday night. 
in the home of one of the Latina moms because they said, we, you know, we have flexible schedules, we can stay up late and then, you know, have more flexibility in the morning around our schedules, the white women. They said, um, you know, we have private transportation, we don't feel, we feel fine driving in and out, we have access to childcare. Um, and so they're starting to address these barriers. But they could have easily just run away in shame, right? Which is what people often do. They, they start crying, you know, you get some white tears, and then they disengage because it's too hard to actually day in and day out live with the reality of these injustices, the realities of this brokenness. But these women, they, didn't, they, they, they refused to do that. They leaned in every time they wanted to slink away. And then they said after, after six weeks of meeting, and somehow these four white women had convinced all the other white women. So there are about 20 white women, um, maybe about 16 or 17 Hispanic women meeting now. And then some of the Hispanic women were like, you know what? We have more friends who would come, but they don't speak English. So what can we do about that? And so the white women, one of the white women said, oh, I'll pay for a translator. Let's get everybody in here. So then they started, the group got even bigger. And then six of the white women said, you know what? We need to start learning Spanish. So they started taking classes. Again, every time they had an opportunity to slink away in shame, they decided to move forward constructively. And the group just kept getting bigger and bigger. And now it's like, now it's like a megachurch. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> wouldn't that be horrible? Um, no, now, but there are like four or five different groups meeting um, all over the city because it's caught on and it's a growing community of real relationships. And then about a year later, the leaders called me back and they said, you know, Christina, we still pray for sure. I mean, it's still Moms in Touch and we care a lot about prayer and, you know, we're praying. But now we're doing all this immigration reform work <laughs> as a group because... As they were praying, they realized so many of the prayers are about, please don't let my son get deported. God, God, please help me get access to health care in a county that doesn't recognize that I'm a resident. And again, right, there's another opportunity to feel shame and to slink away if you're one of these white women and say, I don't know what to do with that. That just makes me uncomfortable. Well, maybe it's because you really are here. Uh, I mean, there's so many ways to justify the injustices. But instead, they said, tell me more. How can we get involved? How can I start to deconstruct this whiteness that I inherited that's anti-God, anti-my wellness, anti-the wellness of this community? How do I face that? I know I've been talking for a long time, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop and um, I'm going to pray for us, and I think we're going to have a time for community prayer, right? So it's great, perfect timing. God, I thank you that you're a God who did not cower at the inequality between us and you. I thank you that you're a God who moved forward, stepped forward, and kept carrying our burdens and emptying yourself of your privilege and power over and over and over again, so much so that you ended up on the cross completely emptied of your power and completely carrying our burdens. May we follow in your footsteps this Lenten period and beyond. Amen.